Hi, everyone. Welcome to this new episode of Luxury Insights Series podcast in partnership with FashionNetwork.com. Today, we are lucky to have Anouk Duranto-Leper. Anouk is the deputy CEO of Isabelle Maran, the patron saint of President Chic, as she was named by the impression of yesterday. Anouk will talk about her vision of luxury, the importance of women in this beautiful house, CSO naturally, and the daily inspiration that she gets working with one of the most amazing French designer of today. Have fun and good podcast. Hello. For uh, our next podcast, we are here with the utterly charming Anouk Duranto-Leper. Yeah. I hope I've pronounced it right. Well done. <laughs> uh, who is the deputy CEO of one of France's hottest and fastest growing fashion labels and a very influential brand. Isabelle Marron. So uh, we're going to be talking to her about the brand DNA, digital revolution, sustainability, the influence of China and her own career path in our latest conversation in our series Transitions. Um, tell me about your career. You, you actually work for several important brands before you end up in Isabelle Marron. Yeah, exactly. Um, I actually started my career as a consultant. I was working with uh, McKinsey and Company. Oh. So that was my first job experience, which was quite uh, different from fashion. But before that, I was, uh, I've always been interested in fashion and I did a lot of internships. So I've started as a sales assistant at Vuitton before joining McKinsey. Why, when you were a student? When I was a student. So I was working, uh, it was the first year of Marc Jacobs at Louis Vuitton. So it was 1995 or something. You actually worked in a boutique? Yeah, in a boutique. Which one? It was the, an old boutique Avenue Montaigne where, on the 54 Avenue Montaigne. So that boutique doesn't exist anymore. Oh. But uh, that was my first job experience in fashion. And then, um, as I said, I've, uh, after that, I graduated from my business school and I decided to join McKinsey as a first experience. And that was not fashion at all. <laughs> I worked for different types of companies. You went to the, is it ESCP? Yeah, exactly. That's one of the three great business schools. Did you learn much there that was useful to you in luxury and fashion? I think I didn't specifically learn about fashion. Fashion was more a center of interest for me uh, rather than uh, a theoretical uh, learning. But I learned a lot about how a company works and how to manage people. I mean, it was very early stage of management <laughs> at that stage. <laughs> Let's be realistic. But uh, I think it was more learning about how company worked. And then McKinsey was a bit... Also about that, uh, learning about how to structure your thoughts and, and problem solving, etc., etc. And while I was at McKinsey, I've met uh, Pierre-Yves Roussel, who was one of the person I, was, uh, I used to work with. And when he left to join uh, LVMH, I was the first one to leave uh, McKinsey and join him to build a, a new team in LVMH, which was the fashion division. But you were in McKinsey in France? I was, uh, yeah, in the Paris office. Uh, yeah. Where did you learn to speak such good English? My mum is an English teacher. <laughs> <laughs> that explains it. But she's depressed because my accent is not at all British now. It's <laughs> so. more charming that way. So you followed Pierre-Yves Roussel were? Yeah, uh, to LVMH. So he was appointed uh, CEO of the fashion division of LVMH, of which at that time was regrouping what the, the so-called smallest uh, fashion companies. So we were working with um, seven different brands, including Céline, Marc Jacobs, Louis V, Berluti, Givenchy, etc. 
And so I've, I've been working with him for five years in that context. And the latest, uh, I was working on strategic plan for the different brands and also some cross-brand projects. And the latest uh, thing that I've done there was to negotiate Phoebe Philo's contract while she was joining LVMH to work for Celine. And that took me quite a bit of time <laughs> to, to do that. Pierre-Yves was the, the one dealing with it, but I was the one actually drafting contracts with the, the help of the legal people from LVMH. And uh, so I met Phoebe and I got along quite well with her. So she proposed me to join Celine afterwards. And so I was appointed um, head of uh, leather goods. At that time, leather goods were uh, really decreasing at Celine. It was not the hottest uh, category in the brand. And for five years, I've been rebuilding that business with the success we all know. So I was very lucky to be part of that experience, which was uh, incredible in terms of uh, rebranding a brand and uh, understanding how you would uh, relaunch a brand because it was quite a success. What years are we talking about now? Uh, which, uh, it was, uh, I think, uh, 2010 to 2015. So first collection of Phoebe's was uh, spring, summer 10. So, yeah, I've joined in 2009 and then um, went on. When the creativity was very apparent, when the bags suddenly became the hot bags. Exactly. That was quite a good surprise for everybody. There was a moment I remember I was in uh, Pitti, the yeah. men's fair of Florence, yeah. one of the great fashion events, uh, one summer. And there's unfortunately a lot of counterfeit products available in Florence and I remember for one year you would always see Vuitton or Prada uh, uh, and brands like that but I remember one year suddenly Celine popped up Celine was everywhere <laughs> and I thought I remember telling Phoebe Fowler saying you know how successful you are now it's the most copied bag and yeah, unfortunately was, that was quite no but it's always a good sign when you're copied it means oh. that your product means something to people so so after Celine? So after Celine, I was uh, proposed the position of CEO of Paco Rabanne. Mm. And I've joined uh, Julien Docena mm. to relaunch fashion at mm. Paco Rabanne. So it was quite uh, the first season of Julien. So it was yeah. really early stage. Mm. But that was uh, super interesting to, to work on that project and to bring back that uh, brand that is an amazing uh, brand with great content. And uh, as you all know, Julien is super talented, so it was uh, incredible to work alongside with him to, to build a team, etc. And after that, I was proposed uh, almost three years ago to join Isabelle. It was difficult to resist because as any French girl, Isabelle Marron is always the brand that you've spent your first salary on. <laughs> and, uh, and you keep all those pieces in your wardrobes and, uh, and she's such uh, an important character for French fashion that uh, I couldn't uh, really resist. So and here I am. Of course, though Baccarabane is historically a much more famous brand, historically, Isabelle Moran would be a bigger business. Isabelle is a bigger business because Paco Rabanne fashion has gone through ups and downs yeah. and uh, we, we really had to rebuild it from scratch. So it takes a little bit of time to, to get back to a significant business. While Isabelle was, uh, when I joined two and a half years ago, already a successful fashion brand with a retail network and uh, all the success we know the brand uh, had known. To find the DNA of Isabelle Moran. So I think Isabelle Marant's first point of uh, difference is the authenticity. She's uh, really uh, 
the brand is really about uh, being authentic and sincere. I think the first thing that Isabel wants is to dress people in their real life. And I think that really makes a difference between uh, that brand and most of the brand that I've been working in. I think she really wants to see her clothes in the street on women's every day and not just on special occasions or on very specific uh, times of the life. So she really thinks about daily wear and uh, it's very important to her. I think it's also a lot about joy and sincerity. Uh, she she navigates in a, in a luxurious environment with a specific take. Mm. I think she's really about being an, a woman, a normal woman with a, a slightly better hedge. So I think authenticity, sincerity, joy, and it's also about a girl's thing. I think Isabel dresses women for women for themselves and not necessarily for other things. I always find that she is, it's, it's unmistakably French, but I always find a very rock and roll uh, attitude about the clothes. Of course, because she's kind of, as she's very authentic and she's a bit of a rebel, she, she wants to really I, be... Curiously, I always find it quite American in the many of the references in rock and roll, the Southwest, cowboy, Western, but reinterpreted. Yeah, know. she's a bit of a combination. I think travel really belongs to the brand also. It's part of their, the thing that we want to do. So it's always a combination between rock and roll and very romantic embroidery. It's a combination between boyish attitude and very sexy girl. So uh -huh. it's really always a tension between two opposite worlds that really make that specific look. We call it the Degen. Uh, which is really a, more of an attitude than a, a silhouette. So she really tries to, to work on that. We spent the last uh, 20, uh, 25 years in the digital era. It really began the, late in the last century. Uh, but fashion, in a way, was slower to become yeah. uh, uh, digitalized uh, compared to many other industries. In the recent past, that's accelerated. What's been the transition in Isabel Marlowe? So Isabelle Marant, as a brand, was not necessarily very early adopter in terms of digital content. I think we've launched the, I know, we've launched the social medias in 2015, which was quite late. It was launched when the collaboration with H&M was signed. So we had to, to really uh, build on that and be present. Uh, so 2015 was the launch of Instagram and Facebook account, which was um, a big step. And then we've opened our e-shop in 2017, which is only two years ago, so it was quite late. But before that, we were already quite distributed on the internet because we've always been very important to some major retailers like Net-A-Porter and Matches Fashion. And so many years before. Many huh? years before launching our own uh, e-shop. Uh -huh. In a way, to be late enabled us to be quick and, and good. So uh -huh. we've launched e-shop and omnichannel capabilities uh -huh. at the same time, which was uh, not always the case. Uh -huh. Um, I think we've gone a long way and now we are up to speed. We've launched our Tmall uh, store a few days ago. which uh, In China. In China, yeah. So we've partnered with uh, Tmall to launch our own uh, boutique on Tmall. So on that, we are a little bit ahead of most of the competition. <laughs> so we are quite proud of that. Today, we have a community of over 2 million people on the social network. So I think we've managed to close the gap. <laughs> and we are quite happy with that. Uh, but I think it really tells how the brand relates to a lot of people. And that's uh, always very interesting. I think the digital revolution changes a little bit the way we talk to our customers and it enables everybody to have a more direct access to everybody. So the tone of voice can be slightly different. You can control the image. You have a more faster response to whatever you say, which is quite exciting. Um, and I really 
I think it really changes the way fashion companies are organized because you really have a 360 Uh, take on the customer. So you talk to them, you have your point of sales and you do your fashion show so you can really emerge people in your brand DNA, which is quite important. Tell me, um, millennials, the, the key consumer of, we've, everyone's obsessed with, um, what is your approach to them? What is our approach to them? Yes. Uh, <laughs> so first of all, they're very important, but they are not the only customers. So I think everybody's right. all about millennials, millennials, but we need to keep in mind that The rest of the population is also a very significant base of our customer base. But I think what they've changed, and which is great, is I think they've challenged us to be faster, to be more authentic. I think they don't really believe in marketing when it's not sincere. I think they can tell, they, they search, they, they, they try to understand things. Mm -hmm. So they're not um, just people where you can launch an advertising and suddenly they're convinced you need to be a bit more deep mm -hmm. than that, which I like. The other thing that I think is very, very interesting is about millennials that they're much more open. And fashion is kind of an open business because we always try to integrate people of different horizons and genders. And I think it's a It's an industry where people are generally really open-minded, but I think millennials really asked us and pushed us to be even more open and, uh, and transparent. And I think that's really good because uh, you can't really pretend to do things. You need to actually do them before telling it. Yes. And I believe that's really important in terms of sincerity and authenticity. I think it really makes a difference. I think speed and authenticity are the two key takeover that we have to integrate from millennials. Isabel Murat has grown to be a substantial business. What is its annual turnover? It's over 150 million now. Oh, it's on. It's, on. Yeah. it's a diversified ownership. It's a diversified ownership. So uh, an investment fund called Montefiore took a 51% uh, stake in uh, Isabel Marron just before I joined, yeah. which is the reason why I'm actually yeah. here. Uh, but Isabel herself uh, still owns a big chunk of the business because uh, she's the, the other owner of the company. So it's a diversified uh, ownership. Would the exit strategy of the brand be to go on the stock market eventually? or, or It's or, not defined yet. Not I, defined. No, no, no. I think the investment took by uh, Montefiore is a long-term investment. So they're really mm -hmm. trying to build the company and help it transition from a family-owned business to a mid-sized uh, fashion industry. Yeah. So uh, we're really working down that road, yeah. uh, which is quite exciting because yeah. the, the whole stake of it is to keep the integrity and sincerity of the amazing people that work in that company and that have been working there for a long time and to take it to the next uh, level. You have quite a few boutiques in Paris. Yeah. We have five boutiques five in Paris, boutiques. plus the department stores. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Plus the department stores. Mm. Um, you've opened boutiques in, in New York, in LA, yeah. uh, and in most of the major fashion capitals. Exactly. So you've done a, a, it's a fairly classical way to grow through retail presence. Yeah. Until two years ago, we were only 20% retail versus 80% wholesale, which yeah. is quite unusual mm -hmm. in a company of our size. Yeah. Uh, part of the strategies now is to open more retail point of sales. We've opened 10 last year. So that was a doubling of the number of uh, points of sales. So it's quite a change in the way we work in our daily business. 
Um, we don't target to open 300 stores like other companies do because we don't believe that we are that type of brand. But of course, we had no store in Milan and we had no store in Rome, which totally makes sense to have stores in those type of cities. So we are really targeting the top cities of each country. And how many would you open this more this year? Uh, this year, we target to open 10. Oh, so we would be 30 down at the end of the so year. So you're rolling out yeah. gradually. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> Um, the other big buzzword of the last uh, several years is artificial intelligence. Oh, um, oh. Um, uh, our partners in the podcast, Luxury Insight, uh, you know, they're they're data experts, and um, it's been a, a big influence in people's thinking. What is the Isabel Morant uh, approach to artificial intelligence? Yeah. I don't think we are really into that right now. We are more into sustainability or that type of subject than artificial intelligence yeah. because we are not yet a data-based company. Yeah. We really work more on intuition and fashion sense more than data-driven companies. Yeah. So artificial intelligence for us right now is not yet the big uh, thing. Okay. In terms of sustainability, what are you into? So sustainability is a big subject and we all know that fashion is not uh, <laughs> the best in class in terms of sustainability. Of course, everybody's aware and very well aware of uh, those topics. Isabelle herself really cares about that. You, you all know the story of her living in her cabane in Fontainebleau with no electricity. She's really close <laughs> to nature, which is not Excuse just me. a story, it's the reality. I think the first uh, take that Isabelle has on uh, sustainability that she never wanted to develop a fast fashion type of business. So she re really wants to design clothes that last. Mm. And I think the first uh, thing about sustainability is not to throw away too many things. So she really tries to design clothes that you would wear years after years and that you would keep like old friends, but just you keep them in your cupboard and not uh, at your dinner table. But uh, that's really important to her and to the whole company. And when we do, when we ask our customers what they like about the Isabelle Marant, they always tell you, oh, I bought that coat 10 years ago. It's still amazing. And I wear it when I want to be nice. So that's the best uh, answer we can get. So that's one aspect. We also try to work a lot on uh, social content. Uh, we want to keep the production close to us. So we have more than 60% of our production that is always uh, in Europe. So we don't uh, go so far. Yeah, 60% of what we produce is made in Europe. And then when it's not made in Europe, uh, half of the rest of the production is made in India uh, with uh, suppliers that we've been working with for over 20 years. So they were suppliers that uh, Isabel identified 25, 25 years ago when she wanted to start her business. And it was a lot about embroidery making and specific techniques that really only exist there. And we are still working with those people who are really also conscious about sustainability. So they all recycle the water, they build some foundation to raise. Uh, one of our suppliers has a foundation where they uh, pay scholarship for girls, for baby girls of the employees, which in India is quite uh, right. advanced. Uh, so we try to work on that. And then, of course, we integrate um, eco aspect in the production as much as we can. But uh, we need to be aware that fashion is not yet uh, top of the class. So we try to work with some eco-friendly textiles, but there are not so many options on the market yet. Um, we've launched um, a project uh, last year called I'm on my way. 
So it's a project about sustainability, in in-house project for the employees. And it's incredible the, the reach that that type of project can get because we've built some work groups and everybody wanted to be involved. So we, uh, we are working on different aspects like uh, eco-fibers, but also recycling of product and transportation. How do you try to optimize that to be as clean as possible? And that's it, I that's, think. That's quite a that's lot. That's quite a lot. <laughs> Everybody's well aware of that. I, I think that's one of the next things for fashion and it's really exciting because everybody's really concerned about that now and really conscious that we really need to be top of the class because in fashion is always a leading industry. So if we are not uh, showing the way in terms of uh, sustainability, then uh, we will lose our edge. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there a big difference working for an independent house uh, uh, compared to LVMH? Of course, it's uh, what different. What are the big differences? There are many big differences. Uh, I think it's not necessarily about family versus LVMH. I think it depends a lot on the business side, the business size, because we are smaller. It's true when, that when you don't belong to a group, when you want to negotiate a retail space, you have less bargaining power than when you're even a small brand in LVMH. So I think you're more independent with the yeah. good ways and the bad ways. Yeah. So you spend less time in reporting and more time in struggling with the <laughs> adversity, <Yeah. laughs> which is quite exciting. I think we earn a lot on in terms of agility because uh, we decide something, we do it. Uh, we have the chance to be profitable, so we have no problems in terms of uh, implementing the things we want to implement. And we are free. So that's... Uh, that's quite a lot. Quite a lot, yeah. China, uh, if we look at LVMH, but all the great groups, uh, even more especially Gucci and Kering, it's become the largest market in the world, Asia generally, but in particular mm. China. Uh, how are you, what specifically are you doing to address that? Okay, so uh, we bought back our partner in China a year ago. So uh, because until, uh, yeah, a bit more than a year ago, uh, we were operating China through a distributor. Mm -hmm. so, and we decided a year ago to buy it back. Mm -hmm. So we bought back our store, our mm -hmm. stocks, inventories, and we've opened four stores in a year. So oh. that was quite a big step. I think China is very important because it's a big market yeah. and because the girls in China and the boys in China, I mean, the customers in China are very, very, um, really fast in terms of uh, evolution and evolving. Oh. And if you go to to Beijing or Chengdu or uh, Shenzhen today, you'll find more customers than when you go to Paris streets because mm -hmm. the, the, the people, they dress, they spend, they buy, but they're also... I think they've changed very fast. And, and if a few years ago they were followers, I think now they're really leading the pack in terms of style also and attitude and, and, and awareness. So it's really exciting. But it's not necessarily a different market to me. It's just another geography that you need to, to address and to integrate the specificities of that customer. But um, I think they are, they're getting more and more like us in terms of the way they dress, the way they want to, to compose their style. I think they really have a, a great culture about fashion right now. So but their taste is becoming increasingly similar to, to European. A few years ago, you find different specificities in oh. terms of Chinese customers. Oh. You had the very classic woman oh. that were dressed in Chanel, and then oh. you had the very uh, fashion followers that were following the last uh, hot brand. Oh, yeah. 
And I think now because the customer base has increased a lot, you find everybody at a lot of different type of fashion uh, profiles. So I think now, yeah, more and more people are dressed like uh, Europeans. Do you see a change? In, I mean, you're saying there are different categories of Chinese, but do you see a change in the way they shop? I mean, they, they kind of, most people say they spend more time and money on their phones than, than we in the West, yeah. Ah, in terms of shopping, they yeah, shop from yeah. the phone. Of course, WeChat is very important. The way they search for information is quite different. But once they're in store, they are as, as aware as, uh, about fashion as we are. So they're not influenced by the same type of media because I think they're more, much more about influencers than uh, traditional press. Yeah. But in terms of um, knowledge of fashion and understanding the small brands yeah. and searching for different products, I think they're really evolved. Um, what do you see as the next big changes in fashion and luxury? I think sustainability will make a lot of changes because I think we will have to uh, integrate more recyclable um, components in what we do. We will have to change the way we ship products. We will, so we will have to change the way we work because we need to be fast but also to be clean. Uh, so I think that's going to be one of the major changes in, uh, in fashion. What's the impact do you think you've had on the brand? I, I think it's a teamwork. <laughs> I don't think it's the impact that I have. I see myself more as a, a conductor of a wonderful team. Isabel is, of course, leading the pack because she designs everything. She tries everything on. She's really well aware of what's going on in terms of what sells, what doesn't sell, where do we go. And in terms of strategy, she's, she's super involved. Oh. And myself, I work together with the, the other founders of the company, Sophie and Nathalie, that have been here for a while. And together we conduct the company. So we roll up our sleeves and uh, make the team work in a good direction. So um, it's difficult. <laughs> it's a difficult question. <laughs> I think uh, the... You're not going to pat yourself on the back a little. No, I think the, I think the um, investment and uh, that was a bigger change. So I'm here more to put a strategy in order more than anything else. So I did change a lot of things. I think we are just uh, doing the things that were done exceptionally well before I joined uh, a little bit faster and uh, in a little bit more organized way, maybe. You said earlier that you believe that, uh, you know, by sustainability that uh, Isabel makes things that last. Yeah. You know? On the other hand, one of her biggest successes was H&M, which mm -hmm. is the very definition of fast fashion. It's true. How do you balance that? I think at that time, uh, sustainability was not yet uh, such a big thing. And I think at that time, we didn't really know also a lot about fast fashion because it was a bit of the early stage. So I was not in the company when that decision was made. And I okay. think it was a great decision to do uh, because I think for the brand and for the business, it exposed the brand to a much broader audience. So it was really a, a big boom for the, for the company. Mm. So uh, I think it's interesting. Uh, if we were to do it again, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think we would do it again. <laughs> but at that time, it was, uh, it was uh, relevant. And honestly, the, the pieces that were bought uh, on HEM really sells well on uh, vintage stores <laughs> still. <laughs> so. I, I have to say, my personal experience of buying H&M... Uh, collaborations. Collaborations. And they're, they're mainly women, but there are some men. I, I, I have a car... The very first one, I still have a car logger. And I have a, a long van jacket that I wear, you know, occasionally. So and I have got good wear out of No, no. And honestly, the way they design and they produce those pieces are quite different because the... Um, 
lead time they have to do it and the constraints are not the same. So I think those are not the terrible products. We have quite a lot of young readers who are beginning their career. I'd end by asking you to um, uh, give your advice, uh, generally a few hints and a few do's and don'ts about if someone is like you, a fashion fan and wants to pursue a career in in, In in fashion. fashion, I think fashion is a lot about hard work. It's it's an industry where people work a lot and uh, if you think about the Evil Wears Prada, I don't think it's really that uh, thing. I had the chance to work with a lot of people that are really passionate about what they do, that really work very hard, that can roll up the sleeve and pack boxes at night and because that's also what you do. Um, so hard work, I think, is one thing. Be very curious is another thing because it's uh, it's an industry that requires a lot of uh, curiosity, I think, uh, yeah. because it evolves very fast. Work on intuition, I think, is important. And always work for a brand that you really like because it's not a fact-based business. It's a business that really requires you to think a little bit ahead of your customer. So if you don't have intuition, that doesn't really work. Curiosity, hard work, and listening a lot, I think. Well, very good to listen to you, Anouk Duranto. Leper, I hope I pronounced <laughs> <Yeah>. it right. <laughs> Thank you, Godfrey. <laughs>